Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Here's an idea. On security footage, blur the faces of the folks invading the Capitol on January 6th so that the authorities cannot track them down. Guess who said that today? The lead starts right now. Have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and 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 to be charged by the DOJ. Whoa! What? That is the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, suggesting that he would like to stand in the way of law enforcement being able to identify criminals. Well, well, well. Now his office is revising those remarks. Plus, how federal prosecutors plan to use Donald Trump's continued support of those January 6th rioters against the former president in court and warnings of an apocalyptic situation in Gaza as Israel takes intense, deadly aim at Hamas. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead and the new impact of the January 6th insurrection on Donald Trump's legal and political futures. Today, federal prosecutors said they plan to use Trump's continued embrace of these lawbreakers against him at trial. The Justice Department saying that the fact that Trump continues to celebrate and support the insurrectionists shows that his intent was indeed to commit federal crimes. And that Trump, quote, sent supporters, including groups like the Proud Boys, whom he knew were angry and whom he now calls patriots, to the Capitol to achieve the criminal objective of obstructing the congressional certification, unquote. Now, these new developments come just hours after a stunning comment by House Speaker Mike Johnson that Republicans have not yet released the full Capitol security footage from January 6th as he promised his right flank, because they're busy still blurring, blurring the faces of the rioters so as to protect them, at least in part, from prosecution. We're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other uh, you know, concerns and problems. What? Now, in response to understandable questions about Speaker Johnson's comments, his office tried to pretend that the speaker did not say what we all heard, and they tried to pluck out the comment about preventing DOJ from prosecuting them, saying, quote, 
Faces are to be blurred from public viewing room footage to prevent all forms of retaliation against private citizens from any non-governmental actors. The Department of Justice already has access to raw footage from January 6, 2021, unquote. To date, more than 1,200 people have been charged for their actions on January 6, and more than half have either pleaded guilty or been found guilty at trial. Let's bring in CNN's Jamie Gangel and former federal prosecutor Elliot Honig. Jamie, what we're talking about here has become a central part of Trump's 2024 campaign, not just embracing the rioters and promising to pardon them, but also continuing to lie that the election of 2020 was stolen. Right. Or as Liz Cheney likes to say, the fact that he remains a clear and present danger by continuing to say these things. Look, Jake, I think this really is an extraordinary glimpse at at certainly a part of the special counsel's case, it speaks to intent. It speaks to their charge about conspiracy. Uh, And I spoke to some legal experts. I mean, Ellie can talk about this more, but the people I spoke to this afternoon, these are former Justice Department uh, lawyers who said they read this as the special counsel likely has evidence, testimony, witnesses that we don't know about yet, which is something we've been wondering about, Jake. And Ali, prosecutors say they want to use Trump's comments, continued comments about rioters in their case. But Judge Tanya Chutkin, she has to decide if it's going to be allowed. Do you have any idea of how she might rule? I do think Judge Chutkin will admit this evidence at trial, Jake, because it goes to the core legal issue at the trial, which is Donald Trump's intent. Let me explain how that's going to play out. Prosecutors are going to say that Donald Trump's intent this whole time was to steal the election by any means necessary, right or wrong, legal or illegal. Donald Trump's team is going to say, no, he was merely exercising his rightful, lawful ability to contest the election. Well, here we have hundreds of rioters, people who've been charged and convicted in many instances by their own guilty plea, who are on videotape committing crimes. If Donald Trump's publicly stated position is, and it has been, I support them, I approve of what they did, then that's the prosecution's intent argument here. So I do think this will come in and I think it's going to be powerful evidence. Jamie, what do you make of Speaker Johnson's comments today about blurring people's faces in the January 6th videos? I mean, his office says he just misspoke, but that's, I don't know, that's an interesting excuse. He's, he's a lawyer. He said what he said. I think we should repeat those final words. He did say retaliate against, but he said, and charged by the DOJ. Look, the Speaker of the House, in those words, is saying straight out that he wants to protect people who potentially did something illegal that day uh, from the DOJ, people who may have attacked law enforcement. I mean, what happened to the rule of, of, of law party? I, I think what's key here is what you mentioned at the top, which is DOJ has seen this footage. If there are people who need to be prosecuted, Maybe they haven't identified everybody yet, but they've seen the footage. But I think it was a stunning thing for him to say. And Ali, when it comes to retaliation from the general public, I mean, these people, they're adults, almost all of them. 1,200 of them have been charged or pleaded guilty. Is there any legal reason to blur their faces? Um, Forget the DOJ part of it for one second. I mean, they're criminals. 
Yeah, there's no legal justification to blur the faces whatsoever. To the contrary, it would get in DOJ's way to do that. Now, they tried to backtrack and say we're worried about private retaliation. Uh, that's nonsensical. I don't even know what they're talking about here. But to be clear, what Mike Johnson said is, as Speaker of the House, I'm going to blur these people's faces so they cannot be identified and prosecuted, even though they're on video at the scene of a crime. This would be, by analogy, what if Mike Johnson had surveillance video privately held of a bank robbery and said, before I release this to the public, we need to redact out the faces of some of the participants because I wouldn't want them retaliated against what Mike Johnson is calling retaliation. I think DOJ would call identification and prosecution. All right. Ellie Honig, Jamie Gengel, thanks. Let's bring in now a Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California uh, and Republican former Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. Both of them served on the January 6th Select uh, Committee. Congresswoman Lofgren, um, let's start with the news from the special counsel and how they want to use Trump's support, continued support, for the rioters uh, of January 6th uh, to help prove that he intended to inspire violence that day. How might this potentially bolster the prosecution's case, do you think? Well, I'll leave it to prosecutors to discuss the rules of evidence. But the former president has made it clear that he stands with law violators. He stands with the rioters. He intended the riot to occur to keep in power. So um, I think his behavior before, during, and after the riot is all of one piece. Uh, he was for violence to overturn the government. And, and former Congressman Kinzinger, what's your reaction? Do you think these statements shed light on Trump's intent before the riot, given that he's continuing to talk about these individuals being patriots and deserving pardons? Yeah, completely. And, you know, all you have to do is see when he calls them political prisoners. Uh, Jake, what is it like three weeks ago, he opened up a rally with these quote unquote political prisoners singing the national anthem and everybody was saluting, you know, about the same time he called for the execution of General Milley. Uh, this is in contrast to there is still like this flavor of people out there that believe that it was the FBI that did January 6th. You'll still hear sometimes it was Antifa that there was this basically January 6th was just some peaceful people that got wrapped up in everything, which goes to the question of, well, then why is the president, the former president calling them heroes? And why is the, you know, why is it that, you know, Speaker Johnson wants to protect their faces if it's the FBI and if it's Antifa? Well, it's obviously not. And it just goes to show the mentality of we've got to protect our tribe, our side, because this isn't about defending the Constitution anymore. It's about gaining power at all costs. And I think you're seeing that manifest now. Congresswoman uh, Lofgren, what did you make of Speaker Johnson's comments, um, clearly saying he wanted to blur faces of rioters before publicly releasing the footage to protect them from retaliation, not only from the general public, but also from the Department of Justice, his office, putting out a statement saying he only meant retaliation from private citizens. But that's not what he said. That's, that's not what he said. Basically, it tells me two things. One, he's trying to protect criminals. Uh, you know, this is really obstruction of justice. But also, he's a bozo. Doesn't he realize that all of this video has already been shared with the FBI? Well, and Congressman Kinzinger, that's his office's excuse for why he didn't mean what he said. Of course, the DOJ already has that. How could he have meant that he was hiding it uh, from the DOJ. No, he fully meant it. He meant he meant everything he said. Uh, he thinks things through when he says them. It's here's the thing in his mindset. 
he's, you know, the right flank is getting upset because he hasn't released everything. So he's trying to throw him a bone and say, I'm trying to protect him from that evil DOJ. He meant every bit of it. And the interesting thing is, again, the idea that you have to blur any faces. If this, if the FBI did this, which again, not on CNN, but on other networks, you still see this surviving constantly, this Ray Epps theory that there is this FBI thing. Wouldn't you want everybody's face known? And by the way, if you're a rioter, if you're an insurrectionist, the second you cross that police line, actually the second you got to Washington, D.C., you know that you're on camera. When you broke the law by occupying the Capitol and trying to stop the certification, there's not a single person in there that would have assumed their right to privacy would have covered their face when they were doing that kind of damage. They knew darn well what they were doing. And if you look at the videos, many of them, if not all of them, were proud of what they were doing. So to say that you have to blur it out to protect them from law enforcement is insane or private retaliation is insane because they publicly broadcasted it themselves. And Congresswoman Lofgren, uh, Speaker of the House Johnson, to, to, yeah. I just want to ask you, he's indicated yeah. um, that there will likely be a, a vote scheduled uh, next week uh, on uh, going forward with an impeachment inquiry uh, when it comes to President uh, Biden uh, next week, likely. Uh, what, do you make, what do you make of that? Well, there's, it's bizarre. Uh, there's no evidence whatsoever that they've, I mean, it's, it's a clown show over there in the Oversight Committee. And just a word about Mike Johnson misspeaking. I've served with Mike on the Judiciary Committee for many, many years. Uh, he speaks his mind very carefully. I've never heard him misspeak. He, he's very direct about, I don't know, all, <laughs> generally don't agree with him, but the idea that he misspoke is really not, uh, it's not credible. Congressman? Yeah, no, I agree. I, it's fully not credible. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind. And particularly, by the way, with this impeachment inquiry, can I just say the big blockbusting information yesterday was that Hunter Biden paid Joe Biden back for a truck loan. And that's what you're going to impeach on, that, that, that Joe Biden was a good father. I mean, every one of us in our life has gotten a loan from our parents that we paid back at some point. And, and to see James Comer out there saying this is the smoking gun when neither of them were in government. Look, I said this early on. I said they have to impeach Joe Biden. They have to. The pressure is going to be too great. It doesn't matter what they find or don't, don't find. They will open an impeachment inquiry, and I'd be surprised if they didn't impeach him on nothing. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, mm -hmm. former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. As the nation looks ahead to 2024, one group in several battleground states could impact the entire race, and CNN's John King went to one of those key states. He's next with the latest edition of his All Over the Map series, plus new details about a breached door and gunfire right before a house exploded in northern Virginia, not far from where I'm sitting. Stay with us. We're back in our 2024 lead. You hear the election music. It's a state that's gone for Democrats in the past four presidential elections, but now it could be completely up for grabs. And a lot of that has to do with who now populates the state. CNN's John King spoke with Latino voters in Nevada. And John, Latino voters make up 30% of Nevada's population. How are they fe feeling about 2024? 
A lot of them, Jake, are shopping. And that simple fact is not good news for President Biden. Look, Hillary Clinton won the state by just over two points. Joe Biden won the state by just over two points. It would not take much of a swing in the Latino vote to tip it back to red. Nevada used to be red back when I started doing this a long time ago. Since Barack Obama came on the scene, it has gone blue. But listen to voters like Antonio Munez. He's a veteran. Uh, He served 16 years as a police officer. Now he has his own restaurant in Las Vegas. He says he's an independent and he wants to shop around. Hispanics were a small slice of Nevada's population when Munoz was a boy who admired Ronald Reagan. More than 30 percent now. It's amazing the political power that Hispanics are creating here in the state of Nevada. This is a state that's gone Democrat in the last several presidential elections, but if you look at it today, it's right there. 50-50. Valeria Gurr is one reason why. Our vote has been taken for granted. A former Democrat who worked for the teachers union. How do you do today? Good. Now a Republican with one defining issue. Your son is how old? He's six. And you won't send him to the public schools? I won't. Why? Because I, I work with Hispanic families for 15 years here and I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand how, you know, teachers have classrooms that are overcrowded. They can barely get to them. I will vote for the candidate that support my views on a school choice. In 2020, that was Donald Trump with reservations. I will never condone racist comments towards my community, if that's the question. Now, Gurr hopes the GOP makes a new choice. I like uh, Ron DeSantis simply because what he has done in Florida. I personally would love to see Nikki Haley to have another mom in the White House as a poor school choice. Inflation and interest rates worries Oila Sanchez. She's been selling homes in Las Vegas and its suburbs for 26 years. Her voting history tracks Nevada's shift blue, Democrat in the past four presidential elections. But Sanchez is still a registered Republican. Her first and second votes for president went to George W. Bush. Sanchez liked the idea of lower taxes mixed with compassionate talk about immigrants. Does that Republican Party exist anymore? It does not exist anymore. Would you like it to? I would love it to come back. Yeah, that's me. And Jake Zoila Sanchez right there. She said if it's Biden, Trump, she would vote for Biden because she can't stand the way Trump talks about immigrants. But she says if it's another Republican, especially Nikki Haley, she would go that way. And that's what we found. There's a bit of a COVID hangover still in Nevada. The unemployment rate there went up to 30 percent at the height of COVID. That was the highest in the nation. Plus, a lot of those Latino parents, they think their kids fell way behind when the schools were closed during COVID. So people are frustrated. They're anxious. They're shopping. Now, Democrats say give the president an opponent. He has labor union support out there. The unions are very powerful. They'll fix it. But at the moment, there's a problem. This is the first presidential election without uh, Harry Reid, right? Right. Uh, he, that's and he that's had, absolutely right. He had, the first, he had Nevada Democrat. He had Nevada wired. Um, it's, it's not just Nevada that, that uh, in Nevada that, where Latino voters will impact. Tell me some of the other states where, where that's such a crucial voting block. It's a giant swing constituency. It may not be huge numbers, but when you think about how close these states are, number one in Nevada, as we said, it's 30 percent. In Arizona, it's 32 percent of the voting public. In Georgia, it's 10 percent. Remember how close Georgia was? In your Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it's 8 percent. Remember how close uh, Pennsylvania was? So it doesn't take much on the margins, right? A little movement among Latinos, a little movement among black voters. If Biden's numbers in the suburbs fall a little bit. In very close battleground states, you know this very well, it's all in the margins. Are Republicans going to win the Latino vote? Probably not. But they don't need to. They just need to boost their numbers just a bit. That's right. And from polls, we see Republicans uh, gaining uh, with minority groups. And as you note, it does, they Absolutely. don't need to win them. They just need to win more of them. 
It's all settled in the margins, especially, again, when you think about Wisconsin, 20,000 votes, Arizona, 11,000 votes, Georgia, what, 20,000 votes, Pennsylvania, out of nearly 7 million votes cast, it was only 60,000 votes. It just doesn't take much. And so the president, look, there's time. This is what the White House will tell you. He doesn't have an opponent yet. Uh, But in, in each of the key foundational pieces of the Biden coalition, we're finding at the moment some softness, some weakness. John King, thanks so much. And you can see more of John's fantastic all over the map report tonight on AC360 at 8 p.m. Eastern only here on CNN. And this programming note with fewer than six weeks until the Iowa Republican caucuses, CNN's going to host two town halls next week. On Tuesday, I'm going to moderate a conversation between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the Republican and Republican leading voters of Iowa. And then on Wednesday, CNN's Abby Phillip takes the mic for a town hall with Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Look for both at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. We're also going to stream them on CNN Max, CNN.com, and, of course, CNN mobile apps. Last night on CNN, the spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, told Aaron Burnett that killing two Palestinian civilians for every Hamas militant in Gaza would be a tremendously positive ratio for urban warfare and the challenges that brings. Next, how he wants to clarify that comment today. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In our world lead, the UN warns of an apocalyptic situation in war-torn Gaza, adding there's no place safe for innocent civilians as Israel's military moves further south, expanding its campaign against Hamas, the government and military of Gaza, which invaded and attacked Israel on October 7th. Southern Gaza is the area where thousands of the displaced Palestinian civilians are already taking refuge. So, of course, Hamas is seeking their own safety by fleeing into the crowds of these innocent civilians, using their bodies to shield them from Israel's retaliation. As CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports, some Gazans say the only option left for them is to accept death. Tonight, the Israeli military pushing deeper into southern Gaza, now on the brink of what could be a decisive battle in Gaza's second largest city. Our forces are now encircling the Khan Yunus area in the southern Gaza Strip. 
We have secured many Hamas strongholds in the northern Gaza Strip, and now we are operating against its strongholds in the south. Israeli military officials and local accounts describing intensive Israeli airstrikes in southern Gaza, as satellite imagery obtained by CNN shows dozens of Israeli armored vehicles on the outskirts of Khan Yunis, with tracks on the ground indicating an Israeli push from the east. The new offensive worsening an already desperate humanitarian situation. New Israeli evacuation orders in southern Gaza are pushing hundreds of thousands of civilians to move even further south to the city of Rafah, where UN officials says the UN is not able to provide for hundreds of thousands of new internally displaced people. In the city of Deir al-Bala, nearby artillery fire forcing an ambulance to flee the scene. And new images of destruction from multiple strikes in the same city, where a spokesperson for the nearby Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital said more than 90 people were killed and at least 130 injured. These were the latest strikes resulting in apparent civilian casualties, as a report said the Israeli military assesses about two civilians have been killed for every dead Hamas fighter, prompting this response from an Israeli military spokesman. If you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive and perhaps unique in the world. As it pushes south, the Israeli military says it is going after top Hamas commanders, including the group's leader in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar. Many ask about the destruction in Gaza. Hamas is the address. Sinwar is the address. But amid the southern offensive, the Israeli military reporting intense battles with Hamas militants in the north, where the fight for control is far from over. And Jake, tonight the Israeli Prime Minister is once again raising the specter of the Israeli military remaining in Gaza after the war ends, saying the day after the war with Hamas ends, it is the Israeli military that should be responsible for disarming the entire Gaza Strip, saying that no international force is capable of doing so, once again suggesting that Israel could play a role as an occupying force in Gaza, something that the Biden administration has sought to discourage. Jake. Jeremy Diamond in Studio at Israel, thank you so much. Coming up, tense exchanges on Capitol Hill today. When lawmakers confronted three prestigious university presidents about anti-Semitic incidents on their campuses and the ideology that they say is fueling it. Stay with us. Today on Capitol Hill, presidents of three of the most prestigious universities in the world addressed concerns that universities in the United States are not doing enough to protect students from a wave of anti-Semitic incidents and sentiments on their campuses since the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel. Just last week, the Anti-Defamation League found that 73% of Jewish college students have experienced since the beginning of this school year alone. CNN's Renee Marsh filed this report. After the events of the past two months, it's clear that rabid anti-Semitism in the university are two ideas that cannot be cleaved from one another. 
Presidents of Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and MIT facing tough questions about how they've responded to anti-Semitism on their campuses since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Since the October 7th Hamas terror attack on Israel, hundreds of students at campuses across the country have held anti-war protests, in some cases using charged language and at times turning violent. I have a friend whose son goes to the University of Pennsylvania. Right now he is physically afraid to go to the library at night. Could you Give us your reasons as to why that is true at Pennsylvania, why today a Jewish student is afraid to walk to the library at night. I'm devastated to hear that. Now, the Department of Education has opened an unprecedented number of investigations into alleged incidents of hate on college campuses, Penn and Harvard among them. Can you tell us why the university did not react as quickly as other universities might have or others might have hoped? The notion that Harvard did not react is not correct. From the moment I learned of the attacks on October 7th, I was focused on action to ensure that our students were supported and safe. There have been multiple marches at Harvard with students chanting, quote, there is only one solution, Intifada revolution, and quote, globalize the Intifada. Is that correct? I've heard that thoughtless, reckless, and hateful language on our campus, yes. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. The focus of much of the day's questioning, the fine line between allowing freedom of speech while at the same time protecting students who feel threatened by the language. If you are talking to a prospective uh, student's family, a, Jew a Jewish student's family, right now, could you look them in the eye and tell them that their son or daughter would be safe and feel safe and welcome on your campus? We are absolutely committed to student safety. So all of these university presidents also made it a point to tell the committee that they're also seeing a rise in Islamophobic incidents on campuses. So they are saying that they are going to both work to solving the issues of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, they also went on to list things that they're doing to make sure students do feel safe, including increased security on campus, Jake. All right, Renee Marsh, thanks so much. Let's bring in the CEO of the American Jewish Committee and former congressman from Florida, Ted Deutsch. Thanks so much for being here. Um, all three university presidents unequivocally <laughs> condemned anti-Semitism and the October 7th Hamas attack in their opening statements. They also acknowledged the challenge of fighting anti-Semitism while also being able to protect free speech. Um, what was your reaction to what you heard from the hearing? Well, Jake, free speech is important. It's true. But when free speech and, and acting in the name of free speech allows the voices of some to silence others, allows those marching, chanting violent slogans, calling for the elimination of Israel, calling for terror activities. That's what globalized the Intifada means. That's what from the river to the sea means. When though that type of language silences Jewish students and puts them at risk, then the university's statements about condemning anti-Semitism aren't enough. They need to enforce their codes of conduct. They need to take bold action to keep Jewish students safe. Congresswoman uh, Julia Letlow from Louisiana said she can only imagine how terrifying it is to be a Jew Jewish woman 
on any of the three campuses. And, and then she shared this story. Take a listen. Just last night, a Jewish student from MIT wrote to me that she felt fearful and was forced to leave her study group during her doctoral exams because someone in her group told her that the women at the Nova Festival deserved to die because they were partying on stolen land. There has been no real action to hold anti-Semitic students accountable for their behavior. They should be expelled. What's your reaction? Do you think if somebody expresses the belief that somebody should you know, deserve to die, uh, that, that they should be expelled? I think that the, the universities have codes of conduct, Jake, and included in those codes of conduct is the expectation that students will behave in a way that will not put others at risk, that won't interfere with the education process, that won't silence the voices of others on campus. And when you run around advocating, speaking out in behalf of the horrific terror attack on October 7th, supporting Hamas that slaughtered over 1,200 Israelis and injured thousands more, then there should be action taken. Uh, this isn't, look, the university presidents all today, they all talked about uh, how they, they don't support BDS, an effort to distance the university from, from Israel. And they don't support it because they were speaking in the name of academic freedom. Well, there will be no academic freedom. There will be no viewpoint diversity if universities simply allow the voices of those advocating for terror to speak freely on campus without any repercussions. This is a question of fairness. It's a question of whether the universities in the long term can maintain that viewpoint diversity that they claim is the hallmark of higher education. Mm. And if they allow this kind of behavior to continue, it won't be. So this week at Columbia University in New York, a student group uh, that calls themselves the Columbia Social Workers for Palestine promoted a, a teach-in on campus grounds where they quote, will discuss the significance of the Palestinian counter-offensive on October 7th and the centrality of revolutionary violence to anti-imperialism, see all there, unquote. Now, Columbia has uh, stopped the event from taking place on campus, but just to be clear, this event is calling what happened on October 7th, the barbaric slaughter by Hamas of, of innocent children and women and civilians, grandparents, they're calling it a counter-offensive, uh, and they're celebrating it. And I guess the question is, where is the line between free speech and that speech that should result in some sort of punishment? Because we're, it is a university environment. It is, it is not, it is different uh, in, in ways from just the real world. Well, you know, Jake, you're right. It is different. You know how it's different? It's a place where there should be a free exchange of ideas. And when you allow people to walk around campus spouting statements, calls for violence, calls for not just the destruction of Israel, but support for what Hamas did, which was to massacre Jews, then that free exchange of ideas will never take place. If you don't, if universities don't act to stand up in support of the students, all of the students on campus, then universities in America will be forever changed. This would never be tolerated 
This would never be tolerated if people were advocating for violence against any other group. And it cannot be tolerated when people are marching and advocating for violence against Jews. Former Congressman Ted Deutsch, uh, thank you so much, sir. Good to see you. Coming up next, a powerful explosion destroyed a house in northern Virginia just outside Washington, D.C. What police now say about the man who barricaded himself inside and the gunfire moments before the blast. Just in an Oregon grand jury has indicted the Alaska Airlines pilot who allegedly attempted to shut off the engines of a passenger plane mid-flight. Let's get straight to CNN's Pete Montine. Pete, what is the latest here? This is significant for two reasons, Jake. Joseph Emerson, 44 years old of California, was on board this flight in the cockpit jump seat of this Alaska Airlines flight on October 25th when police say he essentially tried to kill the engines of the plane. What has happened now is an Oregon grand jury has indicted Emerson on two parts, one endangering an aircraft, another 83 counts for each person on board the plane of recklessly endangering another person. What is significant about that is that he was not charged with attempted murder for each one of those people, something celebrated by Emerson's defense attorneys. This is also significant because of the conspicuous timing here. What is happening tomorrow is a National Transportation Safety Board roundtable on pilot mental health, something that has been thrust into the limelight after this incident. And today, the Federal Aviation Administration said it is something that it will look at and possibly redo some of these rules, Jake. All right, Piemontine, thanks so much. Also in our national lead, a violent end to a police standoff just outside D.C. Monday night when suddenly... A Virginia house with the suspect still inside blows up bursts into flames and sends debris everywhere. Police were trying to execute a search warrant at the time. CNN's Gabe Cohen is in Arlington, Virginia, where this happened. Gabe, what in the world happened here? Yeah, well, Jake, that's one of the big questions tonight. What caused this explosion and was it intentional? Police say they're still trying to this, figure this out uh, as investigators continue to sift through what's left of this house with this massive pile of rubble behind me. And if you look closely, you can see the extent of the damage. The roof caved in, a car charred, burnt out out front of it. And police say they had been here at the scene for more than three hours before the explosion because they say James Yu, 56-year-old James Yu, was holed up in his home, in that home, firing flares, 30 to 40 of them, into the neighborhood. They say they made contact with you, they got little communication, and eventually breached the door. They fired chemical munitions, and they say he fired a gun back, and shortly after that, the home explodes. Jake, again, we don't know the cause. The fire department says they had shut off gas to the house even before the explosion, so a lot remains a mystery tonight. What more do we know about the suspect? Yeah, so again, it is 56-year-old James Yu. We know he lived inside that house, and local law enforcement said they really not had much of any contact with you uh, in recent years, but the FBI uh, told us that they had been reached out to by you several times, phone calls, emails, claiming that people were defrauding you. Take a listen. Uh, here is what the FBI told us earlier today. The individual Chief Penn referenced had previously communicated with the FBI via phone calls, online tips, and letters over a number of years. I would characterize these communications 
as primarily complaints about alleged frauds he believed were perpetrated against him. And Jake, uh, our CNN team has also found that James Yu had a LinkedIn page where he had uh, posted several incoherent ramblings and conspiracy theories about law enforcement, about politicians, even about his neighbors who he claimed were spies. Again, that's part of the investigation, uh, but learning more about him tonight. All right, Gabe Cohen in Arlington, Virginia. Thanks so much. Coming up, brand new comments from President Biden and a single factor, he says, that is pushing him to run for re-election in 2024. Stay with us. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, gripping new testimony. Former hostages of Hamas describing torturous conditions. No water, dehydrated for 51 days, treated inhumanely. And at another hearing, more hostages say they were drugged by the terrorist group before their release. Plus, a cascade of warnings on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers hearing about a number of security threats in Ukraine, in Israel, and along the U.S. border. Those warnings coming as lawmakers fighting over how the U.S. should handle those threats. And leading this hour, a stunning admission from President Biden. He now says if Donald Trump was not running for president in 2024, he's not sure that he would also be in the race. Those comments today at a fundraiser in Boston. Let's bring in CNN political director David Chalian. David, an incredibly candid admission by President Biden. What do you make of it? Well, we had seen a lot of previous reporting, including our own here at CNN, that there's no doubt that Trump was a motivating factor, of course, Jake, uh, in Biden's thinking about running for re-election. But as Biden is wont to do in these uh, scenarios where he's behind closed doors, he kind of reveals his innermost thoughts. And what we're seeing here is a real, clearly defined rationale for Biden pursuing re-election despite his current political standing. Is this the kind of admission a candidate should be making? Well... It clearly is going to provide Donald Trump an opportunity here uh, to talk about Joe Biden being so more focused on him uh, than anything else. But I do think if Joe Biden's uh, critical mission at this time is starting to piece back his coalition of voters, some of which he's seen a diminishment of support, reminding those voters of the contrast with Donald Trump and that Donald Trump is the target here could help rally the troops, if you will. Interesting. David, stick around. I also want to bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes and Michael LaRosa, former special assistant to President Biden. Michael, you worked for President Biden. Um, have you heard him say this before behind closed doors? And are you surprised he admitted this to people um, outside the White House? Well, we always heard him say, or everybody, the way everybody always spoke about a second term was never in doubt. It was always, you know, nobody runs for president uh, for four years. And you know what? I, I kind of believe that. I, the guy has been trying to run for president his entire life. I don't believe that he'd be, he'd be willingly um, giving up the presidency on his own if it were not Donald Trump. However, I would... I, <laughs> I would like to see him start being more candid in public. I think these newsmaking events through pool reports are getting a little, uh, are a little weak. Uh, he needs to start being candid with everybody. And, and first of all, 
as David mentioned, a longtime Clinton person once told me, fail to plan, plan to fail. What if it isn't Donald Trump? What, what if the contrast is him and Nikki Haley? I don't know if anybody, any Democrat, including the White House, wants that contrast. In, in my lifetime, we haven't seen a primary turnout exactly the way it started. John Kerry had to remortgage his house in order to, because everybody thought he was dead. Nobody thought Bernie Sanders would be taking Hillary Clinton to the convention. And, uh, you know, I remember in 2007 when Charlie Cook said that Hillary was a freight train and Obama should get out of her way. None of these primaries end up the way they start. And I would mm -hmm. just caution, uh, you know, yeah. Well, you say, what if it is Nikki Haley? I mean, all polls indicate that Nikki Haley would demolish Joe Biden in a one-on-one, -on -one, although who knows? That's just a poll. It's not an actual election result. How do you think Donald Trump, as somebody who covers him, how do you think Donald Trump will react to his saying this? I mean, I believe that the Trump campaign is likely to piece this together and serve it as red meat to the base. Uh, we will like to hear from Donald Trump tonight on this. He's going to be doing a town hall with Fox News instead of going to the debate tomorrow night. But this really is part of his argument overall, is that Biden is personally out to get him, that Democrats and Biden are out to get him. That's why they are, quote unquote, targeting him with these indictments. And that is going to be part of this. They're saying, you know, essentially, and what I just heard from one Republican operative, this is an opportunity for Trump's campaign to say, look, they really are actually after him. He doesn't even want to run for, to be president of this country. It's all specific to Donald Trump. The, these comments, as you know, make it clear that Biden believes he is the only Democrat um, that can beat Donald Trump. Because if he thought that Kamala Harris or Buttigieg or Whitmer or Newsom or Klobuchar, if any, if any of them, you know, could do it, just maybe doesn't have as good a chance, but could do it, uh, then theoretically, at least according to what he said, he might, he might bow out. And Jake, this is very similar to what his thinking was four years ago. This is he. This is why he got in the race after Charlottesville. You recall that was his calling, and he looked at the field of Democrats uh, that were running or planning to run at the time, and he thought he was the only one that could actually see this through and prevent uh, a Trump second term. That feeling clearly has not dissipated in his thinking over these last four years. Michael, what's your take? Do you think that no other Democrat? could be Donald Trump, or at the very least, do you think that Joe Biden is the strongest Democrat to take on Donald Trump? Well, I understand his logic. He beat the, he beat the guy by 8 million votes. In, in, in the grand scheme of things, in the macro sense, it wasn't really that close of a race. See, it was the seventh closest in American history. So I, I understand why, why he says that, and a lot of people do believe that. It, takes, it will take Biden to beat Trump again. But there is a big bench of talent on the Democratic side. We, we just don't know that because there really isn't a choice. And and to be honest, there usually isn't with an incumbent, right? This is pretty standard operating procedure. He earned the right to run for re-election. He's been one of the better performing first-term presidents we've ever had. And Kristen, these comments come as Trump is trying to flip the switch and make it as though Joe Biden is actually the biggest threat to democracy, even though... Donald Trump is the first president in history that refused to leave office peacefully, the first one to not allow a peaceful transfer of power, the first one that staged an insurrection or incited an insurrection, the first he one. He continues to question yeah. our democratic processes, yeah, yeah. like the election. I mean, that is the biggest key of democracy. And he what is, what's the strategy then? 
This is Donald Trump's strategy always, and this is trying to really communicate with Republicans. He likes to flip the, the script. And part of this is, again, it's the same argument that he's been saying for months, which is that Joe Biden is against democracy because he is, quote unquote, coming after him, that these four indictments are Joe Biden using the Justice Department against Donald Trump, his political opponent. The irony in this is the fact that Trump himself has said that if he is reelected, he would use the Justice Department to go after his political enemies, including Joe Biden. Uh, this is just his argument, but I do want to be very clear. When I talk to his supporters at these rallies, they believe it. When he made this speech, they were cheering. This is something that he is communicating to them and they are eating it up. And I just think that needs to be made clear that despite yeah. the evidence, that is true. Yeah, I mean, they believe his lies. We've seen that in 2020 uh, when the election lies. And Jake. I mean, yeah, but thank you so much, uh, one and all. Um, I want to bring in Senator Mark Warner. He's a Democrat from Virginia, chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Senator, I have a lot of topics to ask you about. I have to start with your reaction to President Biden telling donors today that he isn't sure he would be running for reelection if Donald Trump wasn't also running. What, what do you think of the, that? You know, Jake. I don't know what to think. I, I know he, he got into the race because of Donald Trump. Uh, I think he believes he can run a strong race against Donald Trump. You know, I don't even have to go through the litany that you just went through of all the threats that Donald Trump poses to democracy. You know, we're at a critical time right now. I think uh, that I wish we'd get more attention. You know, are we actually going to stand by Ukraine uh, in its willingness to defend against another autocratic figure. It's my next question. Vladimir Putin. It's my but next it's question. like, but the back and forth of, of the, you know, that's your, your guys' job to okay. parse all those, parse all those comments. Let's move on. So you just got out of this classified briefing about Ukraine and Israel, Democrats trying to pass new funding for these two countries, your Republican colleagues, they're dug in, they insist that border policy changes uh, and funding are also included. Take a listen to this few of your colleagues today. Democrats need to understand that the, the issue itself of having a solution on the border isn't negotiable. You're not going to pick up 10 or 12 Republicans for some half-assed deal on the border. I want to help Ukraine, but we're going to help ourselves. Is there anything Zelensky could say today as part of this briefing to senators, yourself included, that would change your mind about requiring the border be a part of this? No. So President Zelensky didn't actually end up briefing lawmakers today due to a last minute schedule change. Um, but why not just add border funding? I mean, there is a problem on the border. There does need to be border funding. I, I, I don't really understand it. No, uh, Republican, Republicans control the House. Democrats control the Senate. Ukraine funding, Israel funding, border funding, problem solved. Well, Jake, no. Amen. That's what Schumer's going to put on the floor tomorrow. $14 billion, second biggest single notion number in the $106 billion supplemental is border funding. Amen. I'm all in on border funding. What I think also happened was I agree there needs to be policy changes. We're at over 10,000 folks coming across the border the last couple of days. That is not something that's sustainable. And there was this three-week negotiation and there were efforts on asylum. There were efforts on parole. And count me in as yes on those changes. Uh, but my understanding is the, the goalposts keep changing uh, in that they're trying to say the full House bill, H.R. 2, take it or leave it. The unique thing is I think all 51 Democrats are for Ukraine in the Senate. About half the Republican caucus is never going to vote for Ukraine under any circumstance. So, yeah, should we do something on border? Count me in. But the idea that 
that they're going to pound their feet if they don't get 100% of what they ask. And at the meantime, you know, basically play to Putin's hand. His expectation is the West and America are going to get tired of Ukraine and ultimately he will prevail. Not only if he prevails militarily, but what it will do to NATO, what it will do in terms of President Xi in China. This would be a mistake of historic proportions. So I think we just need to, you know, bring the temperature down a little bit. Let's find a place on border that makes sense. But what the what what the Democrats were offering was saying, here, you guys have not come up with a border proposal in writing yet other than H.R. 2. Let's get on the bill. And the first vote you get would be a border vote. So write your own amendment. I'd be open to voting for that as long as it didn't completely you know, go as far as the H.R. 2 bill that no Democrat, I believe, in either the House or the Senate would ever support. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama announced today that he is finally releasing the bulk of his holds on military promotions, which includes promotions for three-star general nominees and below. The Senate already took action approving hundreds of promotions by voice vote this evening, um, but, but he's still continuing to block the most senior promotions uh, over his disagreement with the Pentagon's policy on abortion access for, for service members for travel. Um, he's still doing some of this, though, and I'm wondering how detrimental are these, these continued higher-ranking holds when it comes to America's military readiness. It's wacky. It's crazy. It's insulting to our members of our military. These folks had their lives put on hold. They earned this additional rank. Many of them could not move. Their kids couldn't start a new school because they were put on hold. Because one guy in the Senate does give individual senators a lot of power. But usually those senators use it responsibly. If you've got people going out on limbs like this and, and frankly treating the military with disrespect, treating their other senators with disrespect because the vast majority of Republicans thought he was crazy to hold this all up, uh, then, you know, it is time. And I think there are a group of us, probably not before the election, that maybe it's trying to change some of these rules. I just, we can't have this kind of, you know, it's not fair to the military. It's also just frankly embarrassing in terms of how our legislative branch is being viewed by most Americans. I mean, most of the turmoil and drama has been in the House, and it feels like the House is always a little bit wacky, no matter which team's in charge. But when the Senate takes on those same kind of characteristics, that's not a good look. I don't care which political party you belong to. All right, Senator Mark Warner, Chairman of the Senate's Select Committee on Intelligence, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jay. As mentioned, Senators just came out of that classified briefing on global conflicts. Up next, CNN's closer look at the war in Ukraine and the toll it has taken after a year and a half of war. Stay with us. In our world lead, as U.S. military aid to Ukraine rapidly dries up, it is shaping up to be a bitter winter for that country. Russia continues to target apartment buildings where civilians live. Ukraine's Air Force says Russia launched 17 drones and six guided missiles overnight. CNN's Anna Korn is in Ukraine, where she spent time with a courageous group that is the lifeline for communities under constant Russian bombardment. At a warehouse stocked with humanitarian aid, 23-year-old police officer Dimitro Solovy picks up supplies. Food, water, hygiene products and a generator are on the list. He's part of the White Angels unit and they're heading to his hometown of Avdivka in the Donetsk region on the eastern front, where one of the most fierce and bloody battles is being waged in the war in Ukraine. 
I was born in this town, he tells me. My neighbours are there, my relatives, my friends. It's my duty to help them. We are their hope. But getting to Abdivka is a death trap. Shortly after leaving us with his GoPro rolling, he spots Russian shelling through the windscreen. Look, the bomb has landed. Report incoming of an ugly bastard. And there's another one, he tells his colleague. Russian artillery, mortars and drones target the road, and yet Dmitro remains calm. This perilous journey has become routine, despite multiple close calls. Driving past the sign that proudly states Avdivka is Ukraine, the town of once 30,000 residents is now deserted, devoid of the living, as almost every single building has been shelled. But surprisingly, some people still live here including Dr. Vitaly Sintnik, head of the local hospital. Diagnosed with terminal cancer, he's decided he's not going anywhere. We have a job and we do it, he explains. He called the White Angels to evacuate a man who'd just been injured from shrapnel. As they load him into the van, the idle chatter is interrupted. Minka. Incoming. It's a mortar, explains the doctor. Sometimes it rustles and then bang. That would be a tank. As the explosions get louder, it's time to go. This is the road to Avdivka. There is one way in, one way out. We are not allowed to travel to the town, which is 17 kilometres away. The military has banned all media, saying it's just too dangerous. But for the White Angels, they travel on this road multiple times a week, risking their lives to support the less than 1,300 people still living in the town. As the White Angels begin the dangerous drive out, Dimitro reflects. It's very sad what's happening to my town, but one day we'll rebuild Avdivka and I will live there with my grandchildren. We just need to believe. A belief that keeps this community among the ruins alive. Those white angels, Jake, they're incredibly courageous. Uh, as we know, this war is approaching the end of its second year and that US aid is absolutely vital. It cannot be underestimated, but we know it's under threat. Uh, U.S. Congress is due to vote on that $61 billion military aid package uh, tomorrow. The Republicans, as we know, they are wavering, and that would be absolutely devastating if it was not to get through. Uh, President Zelensky, he was supposed to make a, a last-ditch appeal to the House and the Senate via video link uh, tonight. Uh, that was ditched at the very last minute. We don't know why, Jake. However, what we can tell you is that we've returned from the Eastern Front, spending time with soldiers who are fighting that battle in Avdivka. They say it is difficult, that sacrifices are being made, blood and treasure being spent, but they will fight. They just need the weapons. Anna Corrin in Kiev for us. Thank you so much. Then, of course, there's the war in Israel and Gaza and two occasions of former hostages describing what the terrorists of Hamas did to them in captivity, including drugging them before parading them before the cameras before their release. Some of those accounts are next.
Today we are learning some terrifying new details about Israelis who were held hostage by Hamas. Some of them were given clonazepam right before they were freed by Hamas to make them seem happier and less anxious, less frightened in the middle of a terrifying environment. That's according to an Israeli uh, health minister office. Also today, uh, a private meeting with Israel's security cabinet got contentious as former hostages testified about their horrifying experiences in the custody after being kidnapped by Hamas. We want to show you some of the quotes that were released by the Hostage and Missing Families Forum, which says it was not, which I'm sorry, which says it was present for the meeting. CNN cannot corroborate the testimony with the individuals themselves, but one former hostage reportedly told the cabinet, quote, they, meaning Hamas, touch girls, and everyone knows it. I won't recount details, but we had a procedure that no one moves without someone guarding them. Hamas, of course, committed acts of sexual violence against female hostages. Um, this, of course, on top of other accounts of rape. Another hostage told the cabinet, quote, I was dehydrated for 51 days. They didn't give us water. They are inhumane. Hamas deprived hostages of life's basic necessities, they said. Quote, I thought I was going to die. I wanted to be shot. Hamas made hostages wish for death, they said. Another hostage said this, quote, They told us there's no Israel. We believed them. They made us believe there's no Israel anymore. Hamas used psychological warfare against the hostages, they testified. This afternoon, President Biden spoke about the hostages at a fundraiser with donors where he said in part, quote, Over the past few weeks, survivors and witnesses of the attacks have shared the horrific accounts of unimaginable cruelty, reports of women raped, repeatedly raped, and their bodies being mutilated while still alive, of women corpses being desecrated, Hamas terrorists inflicting as much pain and suffering on women and girls as possible and then murdering them. It is appalling, unquote. The president went on to say, quote, the world can't just look away at what's going on. It's on all of us, government, international organizations, civil society and businesses to forcefully condemn the sexual violence of Hamas terrorists without equivocation, unquote. Last night, a spokesman for the Israel Defense Fund of Israel Defense Forces told CNN that killing two Palestinian civilians for every Hamas terrorist during their campaign in Gaza is a good ratio. In fact, he said it is, quote, tremendously positive. Take a listen. And I can say that uh, if that is true, and I think that our numbers will um, be corroborated, if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive and perhaps unique in the world. Now, those numbers, that ratio, two to one, came from AFP News, citing a briefing for foreign media by senior Israeli military officials. But today, that spokesman from the IDF, Lieutenant General Jonathan Conricus, attempted to clarify, saying that he'd seen the report, but he had actually not confirmed the numbers for himself. Uh, but let us discuss those numbers. Let's bring in retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Mark Schwartz. So, so General Schwartz, is that ratio, if it were to be true, um, two civilians in Gaza killed for every one Hamas terrorist, would that ratio for urban combat, would that be tremendously positive? Hey, Jake, good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Uh, 
one, I, I just think the statement's irresponsible and, and concerning, particularly if you know that's what's being used inside of the IDF general staff or the Ministry of Defense in terms of you know uh, measuring the, the performance of airstrikes and, and ground combat. So no, it, it is not. Um, and you know the the goal, obviously, the objective is um, you know. Uh, Violent as ground combat is and urban combat is to mitigate to every extent possible the loss of innocent civilian life. So we know that Hamas terrorists embed within the civilian population, and that's obviously first and foremost the reason why there is such a high civilian death rate. Um, that's number one. Number two, obviously, uh, the U.S. wants the IDF to do a lot more to protect civilian life, and we can get to that in a second. Um, but let's just focus on the first thing for now. How do Hamas's tactics compare to other terrorist groups that we've seen in other urban combat situations, um, such as Mosul or Fallujah or in Afghanistan? Do other terrorist groups embed themselves within civilian populations to the degree that Hamas does? So I would say yes, certainly my experience in Afghanistan, far, far greater than um, Iraq, but even my initial experience in Iraq, they certainly did. And, you know, not wearing uniforms, despite the, you know, theater that Hamas tried to put on with the release of the hostages of looking like this, you know, formal military organization, make no mistake, they're, they're a terrorist organization. So definitely dip more difficult. The other challenge, of course, is we've got one eight, approximately 1.8 million people all consolidated now in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. So that just only compounds the problem and reinforces, you know, the importance of uh, when they're conducting room clearing the IDF and whatnot of clearly, uh, you know, delineating between what is a tr truly an imminent threat versus, you know, civilians that are, are truly being used as shields by Hamas terrorists. So when it comes to humanitarian international laws of war, as I understand it, there's actually no specific ratio, like three civilians for every one terrorist or militant that you're targeting. It, it's not that simple. It's, it's uh, fungible, like every military gets to make it up for themselves as long as they are thinking about it. Um, and it also is the situational and how high ranking the individual is. Um, so it's not clear at all uh, that what Israel's doing uh, in, in, in general terms violates any sort of international law. It, is, it has been made clear by the Biden administration that they think Israel is, is taking risks with civilian populations that the U.S. would not. Um, on the other hand, I look at all the civilian casualties that did take place in Iraq and did take place in Afghanistan. And while I am quite sure that our troops and our service members were doing everything they could to avoid that, there were a lot of civilians killed in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Yeah, Jake, that's a sobering reality of, of combat. Uh, unfortunately, civilians, innocent civilians get, get caught up in, uh, and, are, and are killed as a result of lethal operations. You're right that um, there is no you know, international standard per se, and it's not the military that makes that decision, certainly not in the United States. It is the, our you know, civil authorities um, in terms of the proportionality, the criticality of the target, as you mentioned, potentially Hamas senior leadership, 
there's probably discussions that I'm confident there are inside of the targeting cells uh, that the IDF are running in support of this campaign, looking at um, if they find, you know, key individuals, especially key leadership, you know, the proportionality and criticality of that target relative to the potential loss of, uh, of civilian life or, you know, ser- seriously wounded. When you hear the IDF say, and again, I don't know, I mean, in the fog of war and all the destruction of Gaza, I have no idea what numbers are actually accurate. But when you hear them say that they think the ratio, <clears throat> pardon me, of two civilians killed for every one Hamas fighter and that they think will be, will compare favorably with other comparable urban fighting situations. Do, do you know what they're talking about? Is there some sort of measure of that out there for the last 25 years? To my knowledge, there, there absolutely is not. Um, certainly, uh, I never saw it in my you know, 33 years of, in the military and certainly you know, over the last 20 uh, after 9-11. Um, you know, I just I was really surprised by those those comments when they came out and the fact that they that, uh, you know, whether uh, the prime minister or the general staff, Ministry of Defense, haven't, haven't corrected, um, you know, those comments today is also, you know, a, a bit concerning. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Schwartz, thank you so much for your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. This just in a new statement from Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State after she was criticized Uh, for how she discussed Hamas and sexual violence. Comments she made right here on CNN. Stay with us. In our world lead today, the House passed a Republican-led resolution condemning anti-Semitism, while two House Democrats plan to introduce a resolution this week condemning Hamas's use of sexual violence and rape against Israeli women and girls. Sexual violence and rape, typically an easy thing to condemn, one would think, full stop, but... The resolution has been drafted in the wake of these comments on CNN from Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal. Rape is horrific. Sexual assault is horrific. I think that it happens in war situations. Terrorist organizations like Hamas obviously are using these as tools. Mm -hmm. However, I think we have to be balanced about bringing in the outrages against Palestinians. The Congresswoman today released a statement um, defending these remarks, saying, quote, I understand that I have critics who disagree with me on policy, but for them to insinuate that I would think, say, or act in any way that equivocates on rape is outrageous and completely inconsistent with my record and life's work, unquote. Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida is here to discuss. He and a couple of Republicans are backing a commission to study acts of anti-Semitism in the United States. Uh, Congressman, what was your response when you watched uh, that interview with Congresswoman Jayapal? And and what was your reaction to her statement today? Uh, Well, thanks, Jake. Well, well, look, I'm happy she put out that statement. I'm glad she clarified it. Because, by the way, when you watched the interview, I mean, it wasn't confusing just to viewers. I mean, boy, Dana Bash was even bewildered by by the response. It was almost like uh, the Congresswoman was concerned that she was criticizing Hamas too much and wanted to make sure that she gave Israel equal time for her criticism. Uh, because she kept trying to change the subject back back to Israel, like, oh, well, October 7th happened a long time ago. Let's just talk about yesterday. Uh, and so, look, it, 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 it can't just be that when it happens to women, except for Jews, we have a different rule. Uh, this is not something that has been disputed, by the way, at all. But, look, the U.N. has shown that it was difficult 
to condemn this act. I mean, the UN could barely condemn Hamas. And so this is something that we're seeing out there, and, it's, it, and it, it, it borderlines blatant double standard for Israel and borderlines anti-Semitism. Do you think the Democratic Party has an anti-Semitism problem? Well, of course, anti-Semitism is a bipartisan issue. Okay, let's not pretend like it's, it's just my friends who like to have dinner uh, you know, with Holocaust deniers uh, at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this is a bipartisan issue. And, and the problem is Democrats only want to call out, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Trump when they do it. And they don't want to call it out when it's in their own party. Uh, and, but, it, you know, it's easy to do it when it's across the aisle. It's much harder to do it when it's coming from within your own house. And I just think that it, it, was, it wasn't acceptable before October 7th. But if October 7th isn't a wake-up call for the Jewish community and for other people who care about hatred and bigotry, not just in this country, around the world. We have to call it out, even when it's coming from our friends. It's uncomfortable, especially people you have to work with or that live in your own home or that, hey, you serve in Congress with and that you serve on committees with. You might sit next to them. We have to point out to them that it's unacceptable. This would never be happening with another minority group. This would never be happening if this was coming, if this was about, you know, racism. We would never be seeing this. Uh, but when it comes to Jews and anti-Semitism, you know, there seems to be just a completely different standard. So you mentioned uh, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene, both of whom attended this uh, white supremacist convention hosted by uh, Nick Fuentes, who also dined uh, with Donald Trump. Nick Fuentes is a notorious Holocaust denier who is racist, is anti-Semitic, uh, and he has been talking to people in the Texas Republican Party, launch, which uh, resulted in the Texas uh, state GOP's executive committee, somebody trying to propose a ban on associating with Nazi sympathizers and Holocaust deniers, and that was rejected, that ban. Um, you know, a, a prominent conservative activist caught meeting with uh, Nick Fuentes, but Texas Republicans thought a ban on fraternizing with Nazis might be a, a slippery slope or, or too vague. And I have to say, I haven't gone around to every Texas Republican or every Republican in Congress to ask them what they think, but I, it doesn't seem too heavy a lift to say that you shouldn't be fraternizing with Holocaust deniers and, and uh, fraternizing with Nazis. Yeah, this is the first time I've, I've heard someone say that we don't want to do something with Nazis because that might be a slippery slope. A slippery slope to where? I, I'm, I'm, it, I mean, it, we're talking about Nazis. I mean, that used to be something that automatically people would say that this is unacceptable. Uh, but no, I mean, look, you know, Nick Fuentes went to Mar-a-Lago and had tea and dinner with the former president. Uh, so did Kanye West. Uh, the, the right in this country has a problem when it comes to these neo-Nazis. We've seen the rallies and the marches uh, in Florida and other places. And we see people on, in the Republican Party just be silent. And they're silent because, unfortunately, those are their voters. And the same thing's happening on the Democratic Party. When we see ceasefire rallies and marches, which is a foreign policy issue, but we see people in that crowd holding sides that, signs that say, kill the Jews and cleanse the Jews, we don't see a lot of people on the left calling that out. They're just quiet about it, like, ah, the signs didn't happen. Or when we see posters of hostages being ripped off uh, of light poles around this country as if Jews are, don't exist, that they need to be erased. Again, we see people on the left just ignoring that and being quiet. And we have to call it out. This can't be normalized. Uh, and, and so this is a bipartisan issue. You know, we're, we're losing bipartisanship in this country. It's unfortunate that the one place that we see it is when it comes to being an anti-Semite. Do you think uh, that when you're 
Your two colleagues, your two Democratic colleagues, introduce a resolution condemning Hamas's use of sexual violence and rape against Israeli women. Do you think that Democrats are going to, there are going to be some Democrats that vote against it? No, I think they'll all vote, all vote for it because I think actually they saw what happened. And I obviously think the Congresswoman's clarification on that is extremely helpful. But this is part of a pattern, right? It's, this is not just happening all of a sudden. We've seen a pattern of this, that there is a double standard. Even how Israel's being criticized in this war, in this war look, Israel's not perfect. But, I mean, Israel has to live up to the highest of the high standards that the United States could not meet or any other country could not meet. Uh, and, and so, you know, that, that's just something that we deal with in a reality is being a Jew in this country every single solitary day around the world and even in Congress is that there is just a different standard. We saw just a couple years ago, we tried to pass an anti-Semitism resolution when Democrats had control of Congress and we couldn't get that done by unless we put every other group in there simultaneously. And so there's always a watering down that, oh, it's not as bad or don't worry, it's, you know, it's just the Jews. Uh, and this is something that the Jewish community is starting to rally around and starting to amplify because October 7th showed the Jewish community that, yeah, the Holocaust was a long, long time ago, but there are people who still carry those same sentiments today mm -hmm. around the world and in this country, Jake. You think every House Democrat's going to vote for that, that resolution against, uh, against Hamas using rape and sexual violence, every single one? Uh, I would hope so. I mean, if they, if they vote present, then, then obviously they're going to have to answer to the women of America. I might uh, be willing to do a wager with you offline. Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jake. I had a sobering reality check on what some say is the greatest threat of our lifetime with us. In our Earth Matters series, the decade between 2011 and 2020 was the hottest decade on record for our planet. That is according to a UN agency report released today at the COP28 climate conference in Dubai. The report says the doubling of methane over that decade was particularly concerning. Miles O'Brien is here. He's a CNN analyst and science correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Miles, at the rate at which emissions are rising and the planet is heating, scientists warn it will be even more difficult for humans and ecosystems to adapt. So in the year 2030, how might our daily lives look different than they do today? Well, the numbers are stark, Jake. Okay, by 2034 now, it is estimated, we have to get to net zero, which is to say we are um, offsetting whatever carbon we output with some sort of mitigation to get down to zero at the bottom line. And if we don't do that, or if we do that, we'll still only have a 50% chance of getting to the 1.5 degree uh, maximum that we agreed to in Paris. We're already at 1.2 degrees, and look at what we're dealing with all around us. So uh, we're already well on our way to trouble, and we're not doing nearly enough to reach that goal. A draft agreement at COP28 calls for scaling up carbon capture and removal. That's a technique that removes carbon pollution from the air, and then, and then it stores it or reuses it. Now, critics argue this is expensive, it's unproven, and it's a distraction from policies to address fossil fuels. Still, do you think carbon capture is better than nothing? Carbon capture has a place, Jake, in tough ones, like uh, the production of concrete or steel. But if you're using carbon capture simply as a, an excuse to continue drilling, poking holes in the ground to pull oil up and burn it in natural gas plants or continue operating coal plants, 
You're missing the point. We have a green energy revolution, which is working. We have cheaper, better ways to produce electricity and to spend all of this money to sustain. Well, it smacks of the fossil fuel industry once again, continuing their, their, their outright lies. Yeah. Fossil fuel industry employees and representatives nearly quadrupled registrations at this year's COP28 summit compared to last year. Does that make it more difficult to enact meaningful change or are they partners in this? Uh, it, it, it does because we're talking about all of this greenwashing. You, you, you've got a climate conference that has 100,000 people there, there and huge numbers of fossil fuel representatives. Uh, just the carbon footprint alone of the event is staggering. Right. Uh, but the influence that this industry has, it's, well, it's hard to overstate it, I think. And that's what I wanted to ask you about the carbon footprint, because many of the leaders of the big names who flew to the conference in Dubai, a lot of them did so on private jets. And obviously, it's more than just an appearance of hypocrisy for some of them. It, it's, it's actual hypocrisy. I get that some of them have to fly private, but what is your take on that? Not only is it bad optics, it's just horrible for the climate. And let's consider one thing. Dubai is the home of Emirates Airlines. Great airline. Yeah. Why not fly it? It's a lot less of a carbon impact. All right. Miles O'Brien, always good to see you, sir. Thanks so much. Uh, that election music again. All right. Some big events coming up in the 2024 race. CNN's going to host two town halls next week. On Tuesday, I'll moderate a conversation between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Republican and Republican-leaning voters in Iowa. Then on Wednesday, CNN's Abby Phillips up to bat. She'll host a town hall with Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Look for both at 9 p.m. Eastern here on CNN, Tuesday and Wednesday. We'll also stream them on CNN Max, CNN.com, and on CNN mobile apps. One more programming note, knockout rounds of the NBA in-season tournament begin tonight. Eight teams remain. See who will survive. Coverage starts at 7 o'clock Eastern. Catch it on TNT. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 